Okay, Pasa Mufasa Nihao, Shalom and Salam Aleikum. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Dennis Walker, and today I'm honored to host a most distinguished pioneer of psychedelic advocacy, philanthropy, and policy reform. The queen of the psychedelic renaissance herself. Everybody, please welcome Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation. Consciousness is really all we have, and the possibility of enhancing one's consciousness is precious and key. And so what this understanding of psychedelics gave was an understanding to the key of the core of oneself. And I thought this is a mission worth fighting for. I had the pleasure of interviewing Amanda in person at Breaking Convention, Europe's largest psychedelic research conference, where Amanda was also presenting on some of the cutting-edge psychedelic research that Beckley Foundation is helping design studies for. This is an extraordinary time in the arena of psychedelic science and research. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road. Amanda Fielding, welcome to the Mycopreneur podcast. It's been a pleasure to see you speak this weekend in person. And I want to thank you for all the incredible advocacy work and philanthropy you've done for 50 odd years now. So let's start there. You were a member of the original psychedelic counterculture going on in the 60s, and you're still at the vanguard of it today. Can you describe a little bit about that incredible 50 plus year journey? Yeah, it's been an exciting evolution. I mean, I was, I suppose, in a sort of way, born into it. It wasn't a revolution for me. It was a natural passage. My grandmother was a great friend of Aldous Huxley when he was young. He used to come and talk to her till four in the morning very often. So it, it wasn't a revolt. It was a natural um, way for me to come. And in childhood it was very um, isolated, beautiful, no no friends or toys or any of those sort of things. They wouldn't have nothing much to do except whatever, mooch around and dream of uh, adventures in the future. So, an active imagination. And then I got involved in consciousness studies and uh, um, changing states of consciousness. When I was 16, I um, was turned on to cannabis, which I was delighted with. And then when I was 22, which was in 65, I think, I turned on to psych psychedelics, LSD, which was amazing. And so as I'd had a kind of basic training, I, I studied, although I left school at 16, I studied under the world's leading um, expert called Professor Zaina at All Souls in Oxford. Um, in comparative religions and mysticism. Actually, he was a convert Catholic and thought um, drug-induced mysticism was um, profane, so I didn't actually agree with that, but he was a very brilliant man. And anyway, so then I had a great trauma when someone tipped her bottle of LSD into my coffee with bad intentions and then I met this Dutch scientist by pure fluke of genius who had a hypothesis about the underlying mechanisms of um, psychedelics is to 
um, increase the capillary volume of the brain, so you've got more energy for the brain. And that made a lot of just common sense and practical, and I started researching it in, in myself, and it just made sense. And then I thought, this is just amazing, if one can learn to control the level of consciousness one wants to function at, and having got the level, then you can control the concentration by keeping the sugar level of the blood normal. And my father was a very bad diabetic, and I, as a child, had been his carer and kept the sugar in his mouth, so stopped him. He used to drive over the centre of roundabouts and do all sorts of funny things when he was short. And so keeping the sugar in the mouth kept it normal. So when I learnt that when you take a psychedelic, it increases the blood supply in the brain, and the brain is very greedy in its use of glucose, because it's late in evolution, that part of the brain. And so you want to eat extra glucose to keep your concentration focused, if that's what you want to do. Very important. Yeah, so that's fun. That means you can get top high on LSD and concentrate on the things which really fascinate you the most. So that's what we did for 30 years, thinking, how do we... How do we discover more about ourselves, learn how we, how we work, learn about the ego, learn about the self, learn about why we are such a mad little animal, mad and dangerous, but at the same time incredibly clever and um, potentially wonderful. And how does one increase the, the, the wonder and decrease the horror? You know, that was the whole game. And you're still at it today, and I, I know that one of the things you've been very involved with is advocating for policy change at the United Nations. Yeah. And I understand it's not the easiest thing to do to get them to amend their language. And I'd well, love it if you could explain a little bit about your efforts in, in that regard. Well, I, I realized in whatever, 1970-something, when the gates of prohibition really closed, and you couldn't even mention LSD or psychedelics, had to hide that whole thing, and you had the police raid your house in case there were any hidden there. And I think very small quantity in England got you could get you 25 years in prison. LSD. It was it was like a, a having a um, an atom bomb or something. I mean, it was insane. And so I realised that the only way to overcome this situation was probably by proving the benefit, potential benefit of psychedelics, which I had experienced in the years I was taking it, to prove it with the very best sounds. Now one can't do the very best sounds without changing the global, global drug policy, because the policy controls the sounds, and indeed the sounds can change the policy. So I was someone who'd left school at 16. So I had no letters after my name, which is, uh, well, not only female, no letters after my name, no money to speak of, and um, anyway, a lot of disadvantages. So how does such a person change the world? So I thought probably 
through art, because no one took art seriously. You know, it was just something of value at that point. In the late 60s, 70s, art had value, but no one took it seriously. So you could say anything in art. So I had, I came from an artistic background. My father was an artist. I grew up by art, you know, so it was natural. So I spent whatever, those 30 years from 66 to 96, um, I had to make a living, I don't know, but also studying psychology, physiology, all of that, studying, underlining, but also doing art and thinking through art, I'll try to spread the message of how important it is to realise that consciousness is really all we have. and. That the possibility of enhancing one's consciousness is precious and key. And so, what this understanding of psychedelics gave was an understanding to the key of the core of oneself. And I thought, this is a mission worth fighting for. Because I'd always thought my mission in life, when I was 10 or whatever, was watering the desert. I was going to go to the desert and water it to save humanity, blah, blah. I went to the desert and realised it's a big space to water, and anyway, what could I do? <laughs> so then I realised my mission was to water the desert of the human soul, brain. And so that's still my mission. And I think we're getting nearer there. Because I actually think the explanation, I will, the details won't be right, but I think the basic, basic hypothesis is correct. That what all the different um, spiritual trainings do in their own way um, is increase the volume of blood in the brain. That's what we do through acute exercise, fasting, breathing, standing on the head, meditating. They all in some way are disciplines which ancient philosophers have evolved of getting high, getting above that talking animal down there which talks a lot of rubbish and endlessly. So it's all about getting above that construct. Hopefully someone at the UN can be able to get that message, right? Yeah, but no one at the UN can. There are a lot of... Quite set in their ways, I suppose. They are set in their ways. They go there to have good dinners, talk with the chaps. They're all hardly a female there. And um, I remember, I spent years going to the UN. I actually hated it because um, nothing was happening, nothing changed. And it was just where you went and had good dinners. Mm. And, you know, they do, it was the 10th year of drug policy thing. And they talked about um, seeds, um, poppy seeds or something. They didn't touch any of the key subjects. Mm. So I, what I did was get the key um, drug policy analysts in the world who was basically Robin Room in those days, whatever, 20 years ago, Robin Room and Peter Reuter, one or two others. And I would commission, I first commissioned a book on cannabis from the world, around the world. It was called Cannabis Policy, 
cannabis policy moving beyond, what was it called anyway? It was a very good book and it was published in the UN, spread round, and the head of the UN drug policy said, Amanda, with this book, we will get cannabis regulated. So it did have effect, but very slowly, and that effect hasn't really got particularly changed England. We're still completely... So it doesn't have effect, but slowly there is an effect. Well, I like the approach you're taking, and part of what I do with the podcast is try to platform and connect entrepreneurs and people yes. involved in philanthropic causes who start their own thing and don't necessarily wait for the permission of the regulatory bodies and whatnot. Right. So that's something you've done very well, is you've launched yes. so many different ventures. I started the foundation as an artwork. I had been an artist, and then I thought, well, I can't change the world as Amanda Fielding, a druggie with no letters off my name, two illegitimate children. You know, I wasn't the right person to change. But if I was a foundation, which is just changing name in England, it's very easy to become a foundation. It costs whatever, a thousand pounds. Um, it doesn't mean to say you have any money. So I never had any money to give anyone. People think I do. Um, but I don't. I have to raise all the money. That's the part I hate. What I'm good at is designing research. I know psychedelics better than almost anyone because for 30 years I lived on LSD and I studied myself and I could see how they work and what benefits they had. I overcame uh, nicotine addiction and I, to a certain degree, became much more productive, I'd say. Um, I realised that I could change global drug policy to a certain degree. I could undertake scientific research in order to open the doors into what I knew was right. And I followed that mission and, and did it. I wasn't really ever... Um, I wasn't a funding... I called myself a foundation, but the foundation to me was an artwork. It was a Trojan horse of how do you get in to the establishment and change the establishment from inside. So once I was an establishment, once I was a foundation, and I had 10, 15 of the leading scientists in the world on my advisory board, I could give sem seminars to which I asked the director of NIDA, the head of the prisons, the head of the police, the home secretary, the president. I, I asked key people, and because it was that a small invited group at the House of Lords, I mean Putin's right-hand man, forced himself on me. I didn't want him, because I knew what he'd say, which is surround Afghanistan with military forces, <laughs> you know. But the Foreign Office came to me and said, how did you get him? We've been trying to get him for 10 years. I said, I didn't want him, he imposed himself. But because people like that sort of what they think is an in thing. At the anyway, the exciting thing I think I did was the research. And I realised that I could only do research by coupling myself with an established scientist. So I was looking always for established scientists who wanted to work with me. So the first one I um, collaborated with was someone called... Um, Robin, uh, um, Blakemore, My, what's his name? Anyway, he died very sadly. Very, very good. Best, he was the best neuroscientist at that point. 
and we wanted to start a centre of consciousness at Oxford. And then I did... Uh, uh, Dave Nutt, Professor Dave Nutt, was a lovely person, and on my scientific advisory board, so I suggested with him that we started a Beckley um, Bristol collaboration to research psychedelics. And so that took a year or two to get approvals for, and then he moved to Imperial, so we started the Beckley Imperial Psychedelic Research Group and did some very breakthrough research looking at what I was particularly interested in, which was the changes in blood supply to the brain after taking a psychedelic. And um, our first study had to be with psilocybin, it couldn't be with LSD because that was too taboo. So we had to do everything with psilocybin, which I would have preferred LSD. And um, we found, we didn't find the, the fMRI data didn't show an increase in blood, but it showed a decrease in the default mode network, which is the kind of modern term for the ego. And the ego control is a very interesting factor, but not to be gone in here. Um, and so that was very interesting because the, the default mode network is overactive in psychological disorders like depression or addiction or post-traumatic stress disorder. In those situations, the default mode network, which is the kind of eager control mechanism, is hyperactive. So we thought by reducing the blood to there, it could be a way of treating depression. And our research was very successful. And so that created a wave that psychedelics could overcome depression. So that was the wave we built on. And another wave um, was with John Hopkins. I started, initiated a study to overcome addiction, because I'd been addicted to nicotine as a child. I was very tall and I wanted to stop growing, so I smoked behind the bushes and had become addicted. And then this boyfriend of mine, Bart, the scientist, thought it was a horrible habit, and so I said, OK, I'll give it up. I'll take LSD and give it up. And I did it in one day. And I realised later, when I was talking to Bernard Griffiths, who said that that would be a good study we could do. And that was one of the major studies which showed that psychedelic-assisted therapy can overcome an addiction. And nicotine addiction is more difficult to develop, actually, than opium or opiates. And we had amazingly successful results, 80% to begin with, I think. I think it's dropped a bit, but still very high. And it's a binary result, right? Either you quit smoking or you don't quit smoking. Yeah, so exactly. that also helps with the clinical research, I suppose. Yeah. So you made the distinction earlier about the counterculture was more, you know, the original psychedelic resurgence yeah. or interest wasn't so clinically validated or, or medicalized, right? Yeah. It was a lot more cultural. And yeah. now you've kind of emphasized the importance of having rigorous science and having a more medicalized approach. I'd love you to yes. speak about that. And where do you want to see this go, let's yeah. say, five, ten years from now? I mean, I saw, this is in the early 70s, the only way to overcome this mad taboo on these very valuable compounds was 
proving, de uh, displaying, demonstrating the amazing potential benefits they can give to the individual and society. That I was convinced of. And I thought, well, if we can show that through good, the best science, which can't be put down, in the sense that's religion in the modern world, science, then we'll kind of find our way through the cracks of the taboo. And I think that thought was true, because I had before um, been um, the people I worked with, my two partners, Bart Hugas and Joe Mellon, they were approached it in a more male way, which was telling people this is the way to go. And I thought, well, the female way is actually better, which is tempting them into seeing it's better, i.e. through sounds. And I think, I do think that the scientific approach underlay the, it was uh, kind of what washed the knowledge through to become acceptable. So now, I don't think um, psychedelics can be put back in the box like they could before. I think it's too well established in too many fields that they are very valuable. They're neuroplastic, neurogenesis, anti-inflammatory, um, good for the mood, good for energy, vitality, good for consciousness, you know, good for spirituality, good for compassion, good for nature, you know, they're tick, 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 so many ticks, I think, which have been shown scientifically to be so, that I don't think they can really be pushed into the dark again. But it's much too slow. Now we know that there are very low harms, psychedelics as opposed to other alcohol, tobacco, or other drugs. Um, they're very low harms. They're very high benefits. So there should be a quick forward, you know, a way of overcoming the normal slowness of developing a new compound, which can take 10 years and cost hundreds of millions. You know, we should be able to fast forward that. We can, we've shown that, if you like, um, um, MDMA therapy, for post-traumatic stress disorder with wall veterans works better than talking therapy. So let's go for it. Or, you know, we can throw, I'm just throwing, well, I haven't shown, but I've shown on one person, but what's on one person can become multi-people, that a microdose of LSD can overcome acute apathy and misery in Alzheimer's and restore, amazingly, the sense of self. This wonderful old lady, she was deeply, she was like in hell. Her expression was as if she was there at the doors of hell. And then one hour later, she was this sparkling little lady saying, I feel so wonderful. Let's read some poetry to her son. And now we I could recreate that model. So we could have homes where we can give that treatment to people, homes which are designed to make people happy, have animals, children, home-like things, and microdosing.
And we know microdosing actually does not do harm. So it would be so much easier if we, I could, with other people, set up these clinics, research with permission from the government, you know, large quantities of people, and then they can be treated at home with lovely doulas to look after them. You know, we could make it all much quicker and more pleasant for people if we thought more outside the box. And I think there's all sorts of areas where psychedelics can help humanity. They can increase your sense of beauty, music, compassion. Do you know what I mean? So, I know a lot of what you mean because I myself yeah. have been shaped by psychedelics in many ways and yeah. I've always found them especially in the formative years of my psychedelic use to make me more creative. Yes. I had a creative impulse after my psychedelic experiences and I wanted to explore that side. I got into making music largely yeah. as a result of my psychedelic experiences. Right. And you know, to round out this interview, I'd love to hear about that for you. How has your artistic practice and that presence, that artistic approach you take to the world, been yeah. shaped by your psychedelic experiences? I think so. I mean, I used to be more of a, I was a sculptor than a painter. And actually, then when I decided to set up the Beckley Foundation, which is an artwork, it's a conceptual artwork of how does one change, how does one change society? You know, you... So it's, that's what I consider it. It's an artwork. And that's taken a lot of energy, and it's taken the energy away from being able to paint pictures, which I love. It's much more fun painting pictures, but I think it's more productive to play with an ever-increasing um, gang of light players. How do, how do we change society for making it a happier place? And you know, I, I think it's moving forward, but I think there are terrible ways still to be um, overcome. I've got but, one last question for you. Yeah. Uh, can you describe your relationship with Albert Hoffman, seeing as how it was just Bicycle Day, uh, yes. and also the promise you made to him to bring his problem child back into the mainstream and to integrate it into the world? Yeah, well, he was an absolute darling. He's a sweet, sweet man. An amazing sparkle, and I'm, I met him at a conference. It never occurred to me that I could write to him. He said, why didn't you write to me before? It never occurred to me. And the first thing I said to him, have you ever thought that LSD increases the volume of blood in the brain capillaries? And I can remember him very clearly saying, well, I'm just a modest Swiss chemist, not a physiologist. But I and my wife, we hang from our feet every day to get more blood in our breads. And it was a very sweet statement. And I've got, he gave me a photograph of him hanging upside down. Oh, no, the wife hanging upside down. And basically, he, started, he, he discovered LSD's properties through looking at ergot, which had been used in uh, midwifery to stop as a, as a um, vasoconstrictor to stop bleeding, postnatal bleeding. And so that's how he had discovered LSD. And um, we, we became very, very close. And he told me that his house was my house. Why didn't I come there whenever I wanted to? Actually, stupidly, I never did. 
But he, he was a really, really lovely man. I think the happiest man I've ever met because he knows what a gift he'd given to the world and he just longed for his beloved child to be accepted in society. So I said, look, I'll, I'll do that for you. By your 100th birthday, I'll have done it. But the way the taboo works, I had actually got the first study, brain imaging study, with LSD down, um, got approvals to do at Berkeley, California. And I thought, this is the breakthrough. And then the taboo struck, as it always does, because it's a very good opponent. And um, actually, the scientist then changed, instead of doing LSD without telling us, he changed to MDMA because it was the easier subject. And me and Albert and the fun, you know, everyone was very disappointed, so it fell through. But now, whatever it is, 20 years later, 30 years later, I'm on the threshold of doing what I promised Albert, I think. It's a tremendously exciting time, and thank you for joining us on the Michaelpreneur podcast, and it's been an honor to host you, and just thank you again for all your incredible philanthropy and advocacy over many years. Thank you, thank you. Lovely. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode, and please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, michaelpreneur at gmail.com. Or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Michaelpreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Michaelpreneur Podcast.